Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, please. Isaiah 9. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. It'll be page 692 on one of those pew Bibles. Boy, Ron, I really appreciate the hard work that has gone into... Uh, this morning. It has been a wonderful, wonderful time. It's blessed my heart to hear and to sing the truths. It's incredible, isn't it? The music that has been generated by the most amazing event possible that God would condescend to come to earth to redeem a rebellious people. Well, we want to look this morning. The choir has sung for us from Isaiah 9, particularly verses. 6 and 7 is our focus this morning. You know, in our culture, it's common for new parents to send out birth announcements. When there is a child born into a family, they typically, announcements will be sent out to friends and family members to enable them to be informed of the event and to enter into the celebration and the joy of the gift of a new life. And typically, a birth announcement in our culture reads something like this. Our bundle of joy has arrived. William Brown, born December 17th, 2006, 8 pounds, 8 ounces, 20 and a half inches long. Parents, Sheila and Richard Brown. Well, a common feature of these kinds of announcements, of course, is the physical characteristics of the child, right? When there's a child born, immediately people want to know birth weight and length. This morning, I want to look with you at a different kind of birth announcement, one that ignores these physical characteristics of of, uh, height and weight and emphasizes something far more vital. The background for the text this morning of Isaiah chapter 9 lies in a dark period of Israel's history. The nation has been separated for a couple of hundred years now. And so it is a time when there is civil war going on north and south. It is a time when the various kings who are ruling both north and south are in it primarily for what they can get out of it rather than how they can serve their people. It is a time of foreign oppression as well. The Assyrian Kingdom is on the rise and Tiglath-Pileser III is now pressuring and threatening the nation of Israel. It is a time of, of economic devastation, a time of hunger and famine. Dark storm clouds are gathering on the horizon. The outlook is doom and gloom. There is very little to encourage the heart of God's people. The nation as a whole has rejected the Word of God to them. They have killed the prophets that God has repeatedly sent to them to call them back to the covenant. But in spite of this rejection of God's Word to the people, He still plans to give light to this nation. He's not specific with regard to the timing of when that will be But there will be a day when the darkness will be parted. 
A time when the gloom will be put away. A time when the, when the oppressor will be vanquished. A time when light will dawn upon the nation. Look, verse 1 in chapter 9, and notice what he says. But there will be more, no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence and with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. For the rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. A day is coming when the darkness will be stripped away. But how? But how will it come? What will bring such great deliverance? Verse 6, For a child will be born to you. With his prophet's eye, Isaiah looks down the corridors of time and he prepares a birth announcement. A birth announcement in which he reveals to the nation through the prophet Isaiah five vital statements regarding this coming one, this child deliverer. This morning I want to look at those five statements with you regarding the deliverer so that we will not grow discouraged looking for light in a very dark world. The first statement that the prophet gives us here in verse 6 is that the deliverer will arise from within the nation, yet he will be a gift from above. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The unique nature of this coming one is hinted at by the terminology that the prophet employs. He talks about being born. That is normal for a child. Humans are frequent, frequently or, or always spoken of being born, but it's infrequent that they would be spoken of as given. This one is given, and that implies the work of deity. God gave us a child, someone might say. And so we see in this promised one who rises from within the nation. Notice he says the child will be born to us. That is, he will come within the nation of Israel. But he is also given to us. That is, he comes from outside the nation of Israel. This special one who can fulfill the ancient prophecies, the long ago promise to the father Abraham, the promise to the great King David, that their promises will come true and they will come true within this special one, this child born from within, given from above. The disciple Matthew, when he pens his gospel, is consciously aware of this. For he begins the gospel of Matthew in chapter 1 and verse 1 by saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. 
This is the one to come. He is a gift given to the nation. Beloved, this speaks of His nature. That He is both human and divine. The necessary, the necessary mystery of the Incarnation. That this Deliverer comes as a child, it is a gift from God. It is His humanity that enables Him to suffer upon a cross, to die there as our substitute. It is His nature as God Himself that generates sufficient merit to atone for yours and my sin. This special child, arising from within, yet given from above. But beyond that, the prophet tells us in the birth announcement that He will be a ruler of the world. Look. And the government will rest upon His shoulders. The government will rest upon His shoulders. That is, figuratively speaking, He will, he will wear the king's robe. When the king placed his royal robe on, it was figuratively to represent that the weight of the government rested upon him. And so, upon this deliverer born as a child, given from above, will be the rule of the world. The rule of both his nation, Israel, and the world at large. A later prophet Filling out this prediction says in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The prophet Zechariah writes after this, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day the Lord will be the only one in His name, the only one. The government will rest on His shoulders the apostle paul in the new testament writing to the church at philippi fills it out further for us and he says for this reason that is because of the of the the um, lowering of himself in the incarnation for that reason god has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be a world ruler. The government will rest upon him. Beloved, this is a statement that speaks of our necessary allegiance to this coming one. If He has all rule, all authority over all creation, then we must give allegiance to Him. And beloved, someday we will. The Scripture is clear there in Philippians 9 that every, or Philippians 2 that every knee shall bow. All of creation will bow before this coming One. Those who bow by faith now, seeing with those eyes of faith the reality of the risen Christ, Walk in the light. Those who refuse Him allegiance now walk in the darkness. But all will bow someday. I can't help thinking of the wise men, right? Those Persian kingmakers who traveled so long and far to see this one. When they arrived there, the child in the house, Matthew's Gospel tells us that they bowed in worship before Him, presenting gifts Fitting for a king. We do well to imitate the wise men and bow our own hearts and lives in allegiance to this coming one.
Third, the prophet tells us that he will have four descriptive titles which reveal his true character. This coming one, there is much that we can know about him. Now, we need to enter into a biblical mindset here. Being Americans and living in the 21st centuries, names do not carry much significance for us. Most in this country name their children based on something having to do with either fashion, whatever the fashionable names are of the time, or perhaps pleasant memories associated with names. But, but we don't name in the way the biblical characters name. Our names don't carry the same significance that they carried. In Bible times, a, a name spoke of the essential nature of the individual. The name was attached to him in such a way it revealed something about who he was or she was. We get a clue of that in Genesis chapter 32. There in Genesis chapter 32, we have Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Do you remember that? He is wrestling there with the angel of the Lord. And, and Jacob said to him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? The text says he blessed him there. Jacob wanted to know that angel with whom he wrestled. He wanted to know the essential nature of who it was that he wrestled with that long, dark evening. And so by revealing here in this birth announcement the compound names, and there are four of them, there is much we can learn about this deliverer. So let's take a look at those names. Contrary to what we heard through Handel's Messiah, Wonderful and Counselor are not two separate names. It is one name. There are four compound names given us here in the text. Look at them. And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The first name given to Him here is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. It is common for a king to have counselors, for a head of state to have those that counsel and advise them. Our own American president has a cabinet of individuals with various specialties that has been put together to act as his advisory, in an advisory capacity to give him counsel, to share wisdom with him, to help him to make good decisions and such has been true throughout antiquity a king would always have his counselors and so we would expect this coming deliverer to have counselors as well this one born to us as a child given as a son we would expect counselors to help him accomplish such a great deliverance but according to the prophet isaiah the deliverer's very name and thus his essential nature is that of a counselor. He is a dispenser of wisdom. He is not one who receives the wisdom from outside. He is the one who dispenses wisdom from himself. But he is no ordinary counselor. It's not just that he is a wise individual. It's not that he's just studied in the ways of the world. No, it is far more than that. He is called Wonderful Counselor here, a compound name. Not wonderful, by the way, in the sense of being extraordinary, but in the sense of being divine. It is speaking 
of the divinity of this coming one. The Hebrew word translated here, wonderful, appears in, a, in its root form in Psalm 78 and verse 12. There in that context, it refers to the mighty miracles of God as He delivered the ancient nation of Israel from Egypt. When the various miracles or wonders that were performed in the deliverance of that great people. The word also appears for us over in Judges chapter 13 and verse 18. And there it is used as the name of the angel of the Lord who is commonly believed to be the pre-incarnate Christ. And there in that passage of Judges chapter 13 and verse 18, in the margin, at least of the New American Standard, there's an alternative translation provided which is incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. And I think between the reference in Psalms and the reference in Judges, between the understanding of wonders and miracles and the sense of being incomprehensible, we get an idea of what is spoken of here about this wonderful Counselor. Only God's works are wonders. Miraculous. Only God's character is incomprehensible. And thus, the name Wonderful Counselor conveys the idea, the understanding that this Deliverer to come is the divine dispenser of wisdom. He is the source of truth. There is no need to go anywhere else. Countless millions, hundreds of millions, maybe billions, I don't even know, of dollars are spent every year in this country with people searching for truth, attending various doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists and counselors of one sort and another, searching for truth, and yet the Scripture tells us that the divine counselor, the one who possesses the wisdom of the universe is available to us through His very Word. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in Colossians chapter 2, where he says, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You seek to understand the eternal questions of life. Where am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is it all about? How is it all going to end? How can a man be made right with God? You need answers to these questions. The answers are available to, he, to you here in the Word of God, the Word of this great and wonderful Counselor. Beyond a Counselor, He is a mighty God, it says, verse 6. Mighty God, another compound name. A name that combines the, the word El for God and, and the word Gabor, which means mighty or hero. He is the powerful one. And wherever this compound name occurs, it always speaks about God. This is a direct reference to the divinity of this coming one. He is God. The mighty one. The powerful one. The one who is able to lead His people to victory. Remember, the context in which this birth announcement is given is the nation is in darkness. The nation is being oppressed by foreign invaders. The economy is shattered. The people are starving. 
It is spiritual darkness and blackness everywhere they look. There is no hope to be had. Yet this child is mighty God, able to defeat the forces arrayed against them, be they physical or spiritual. The one whom Isaiah later will say in Isaiah 53 is able to absorb the wrath of God against the sin of his own people. The one who will drink the cup of the wrath of God to the last drop. The one whom we are informed in Revelation chapter 19 who will crush all those enemies who oppose him when he establishes his great kingdom. He is a mighty God. He's also an eternal Father, it says, verse 6. Eternal Father. This title speaks of Father, speaks of the quality of the Deliverer with regard to His people. Again, ancient kings were frequent to call themselves Father. They would be the Father of their people. And they would speak and think in those terms, but the problem was their rule was always temporal and frequently characterized by self-interest. But the Deliverer, the Eternal Father, the One who remains Father forever, ministers tenderly, faithfully, guardian and provider for His people, both now and forevermore. The Eternal Father. Forth the Prince of Peace, it says. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Ruler of Peace. How the world looks for peace. Peace, peace. But there is no peace. I was driving along not too long ago, following behind a car that had a bumper sticker. It says, visualize world peace. There is a hunger, there is a thirst in the human heart for peace. Yet all around us, everywhere we look, we see the absence of peace. We see just the opposite. We see violence. We see oppression. We see hostility. We see wars and rumors of wars. Countless politicians promise us peace if we will but elect them to another term. But Isaiah declares that only the deliverer will truly be able to bring peace. And that's because true peace is more than just a cessation of warfare. It is more than a truce, a negotiated armistice. It is the establishment of love in the place of hostility. Ultimately, true peace comes only when the hostility that exists between God and man has been removed. And that hostility can only be removed when the guilt of a fallen sinner is extinguished at the cross of Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and in verse 1 that peace is the first fruit of justification. Without being made right with God, beloved, there can be no peace. This Prince of Peace established the basis of peace by yielding His own body on that cross. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ that all of these characteristics come true of this future Deliverer. He is the one that the angel said to Joseph will save His people from their sins. 
A fourth statement we learn from this birth announcement this morning is that He will eternally fulfill the Davidic covenant with a rule unlike any other. Verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Approximately 300 years before Isaiah penned this prophecy, God spoke to David, the great king of Israel. And he issued him a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the promise that he issued to David is that his descendant would reign upon the throne of Israel forever. Now, 300 years later, the promise looks hopeless. The nation is politically and spiritually divided. The threat of foreign domination is real. In little more than a couple of lifetimes, the nation will be swept from their homeland and cease to exist as a people. And in spite of these dark clouds that grow on the horizon, God's promise to David remains sure. The coming deliverer will head a government, he says, that is both perpetual and boundless. It's characterized by peace. How different that is from the governments of both Isaiah's day and ours, right? The governments that we know are characterized by instability, by hostility, by disruption. But the deliverer's government will fulfill the longing of the human heart. Turn a couple of pages to the right to chapter 11. And listen how the prophet describes this deliverer's rule, this kingdom that comes, beginning in verse 4. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is a great kingdom coming. The great Davidic kingdom. The promise made to David will be fulfilled. And we are still waiting that fulfillment. The Deliverer came the first time. He came as a lowly child born in a stable. Too unimportant to receive the notice of the religious authorities of his own people that lived but six miles away. He came that first time to atone for sin. To give up his life on a cross to conquer for once and for all the sin that separates the Creator and His people. 
And when that task was accomplished, he returned back to the throne room of glory with a promise that he would come again. A promise that is just as sure as the promise of that first coming. And when he returns again, he will fulfill the balance of this birth announcement. He will establish the great Davidic kingdom. These two promises, beloved, are like mountain peaks. You know, it's fascinating. I live just a short distance east of here and cannot see Mount Baldy. There's another peak in the way, although Baldy is the highest of the range. Yet you move over to Mountain Avenue and you come up and you can see Mount Baldy. Those two peaks superimpose one on the other and with a great valley between. Prophecy is much like that. From the prophet's perspective, he's not sure sometimes whether the two peaks are superimposed or he's looking at two different peaks with a vast valley of time between. We know now with the benefit of hindsight, the elaboration of the New Testament, that indeed there are two comings of Christ. And His second coming is just as sure as His first. The night in which He was betrayed, Jesus there alone in the room with His disciples gave them a promise, didn't He? John 14. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come to receive it at myself, that where I am there you may be always. It is the certainty of His promise to David that gives us hope in His return. Again, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. In that chapter, he is dealing with the nation of Israel. And what about them? Have they been cast off? He says, no way. No way. God has made a promise to them that he will fulfill. God's promise to David will be fulfilled. And beloved, if he fulfills those promises, he will fulfill the promise of salvation to you and I. But it's against this backdrop of darkness, of blackness, that Isaiah makes this startling prediction. A deliverer will arise to save his people. How do you know? How do you know it's sure? When will it happen? Can I count, can I count on it? Is there a guarantee? Take a look at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Lest you doubt, the prophet says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 9, 7, will accomplish this. And this is the last startling piece of this birth announcement. That the deliverer's rule cannot be thwarted by either man or demon. The extent to which God has intervened to fulfill this prophecy, to display His zeal, is amazing. I briefly take your attention to three nefarious individuals in the history of the nation who have sought to to destroy this promise, to prevent the Deliverer from coming. And by being reminded of God's zeal in each of those cases, We have confidence in His zeal for the days to come. The first attempt actually occurred a hundred years prior to the giving of this prophecy. The next two occurred 250 and then 700 years later. The first one was by Queen Athaliah. 
She came within one child of exterminating the Davidic line, the royal line of David. She had usurped the throne and then set about killing and destroying all of her own grandchildren. And had it not been for the providential intervention of her stepdaughter-in-law, Jehoshaphat, who spirited away one small child and concealed him for six years, that the royal line of David would have been snuffed out. Had the line come to extinction, the promise of the coming deliverer would have come to naught. Later, as I say, about 250 years later, another attempt was made to destroy the royal line. This time it came at the hands of a pagan prince by the name of Haman the Agabite. This is revealed to us in the book of Esther. Haman had received permission from the Persian monarchy to destroy all the Jews, to kill them all. Yet God intervened. He intervened through the life of one young Jewish woman who he providentially placed upon the throne. And there Esther was able to persuade the king to rescind the order, to preserve the nation. Lastly, the child itself, once born into this world, nearly died. Herod the Great, the ruler in Jerusalem, the usurper to the throne himself, a man consumed by his own wrath and jealousy and murderous rage, set about to kill this child, this coming one, He ordered his soldiers to go to the little hamlet of Bethlehem and to destroy every male child from the age of two and under. Yet God, in his zeal, providentially intervened. And through a a vision to Joseph, he was told to arise quickly and take the child and flee to Egypt that his life might be preserved. No matter how, either man nor Satan sought to disrupt the destiny of the Deliverer, they could not succeed. Because before the foundations of the earth, God had planned for this one to come. This one who would come and save His people. Jesus Himself expressed it this way in John 10. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This Christmas, when you think of a child born in a manger, don't think of a helpless individual. Do not Allow your Christmas understanding to be so narrowly restricted. Think instead in the face of that helpless child that here is the long-expected Deliverer. The One who has come to set His people free from the darkness of sin and oppression. Beloved, if you have not made peace with this one, if this Christmas time finds you maybe here 
as our guest for the first time. Maybe some of what we've spoken of this morning is new to you, new ideas, new thoughts. There is no better time to be right with God, to receive the gift of Christ Himself. How do you do that, you might ask? You can do that in your seat where you sit, in your own quietness of your own heart. You call out to God and you confess, God, I have been living life my own way. I have been rebellious against you. I have sought to be my own king, my own ruler. I have made a mess of my life. I know that I am under condemnation. I know that I'm a sinner. I know it in my heart. And on my best days, I still fall short of your glory. I beseech you. I call out to you. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe that that one born in Bethlehem is that one who was stretched upon that Roman cross. And He died there for me. He poured out His blood for me. That you might count His death as mine. And that you might credit His righteousness to me. By faith, I take Him as my Savior and my Lord. If you will pray along those lines, you will express that to God. The Bible says you shall be saved. And this will be the most fulfilling, the greatest, the the most memorable Christmas imaginable. For you will be born this day. After service, we will have counselors available over by this lighted cross. If you seek to speak further on these things, allow me to pray our father we thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ the deliverer who was prophesied so long ago the one who came to set his people free the one who came to conquer darkness sin the one who is coming again to establish the great Davidic kingdom in which peace and prosperity will reign as the waters cover the sea. The one who died a despicable death on Calvary's cross that I might be free from my sin. Oh, Father, we thank you for such a gift and we rejoice your mercy and grace poured out on our behalf. May you enable us to think on these things in the days to come. That as the press of the holiday closes in around us and obligations for parties and presents and family obligations, may you enable us to make time to to meditate on the reality of our salvation in Christ. We will give you glory in his name. Amen.